Chapter thirty one of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter thirty one. Remember, Lord, thou didst not make me good, or if thou didst, it was so long ago I have forgotten and never understood. I humbly think. George MacDonald. On a sunny September day, Dick, the absentee, was gathered to his father's at Riff. Is there any church in the world as beautiful as the old church of Riff where he was buried, with its wonderful flint-panelled porch, with the chalice, host, and crown carved in stone on each side of the arched doorway as you go in, beautiful still in spite of the heavy hand of Cromwell's men, who tore all the dear little saints out of their niches in the great wooden font cover, which mounts richly carved and dimly painted like a spar, made of a hundred tiny fretted spars to the very roof of the nave, almost touching the figures of the angels leaning with outstretched wings from their carved and painted hammer-beams. In spite of all the sacrilege of which it has been the victim, the old font-cover with the coloured sunshine falling aslant upon it through the narrow pictured windows remains a tangle of worn, mysterious splendour, and the same haggard, forlorn beauty rests on the remains of the carved screen with its company of female saints painted one in each panel poor saints, savagely obliterated by the same Protestant zeal, so that now you can barely spell out their names in semicircle round their heads. St. Cecilia, St. Agatha, St. Osythe. But no desecrating hand was laid on the old oaken benches with their carved finials. Quaint, intricate carvings of kings and queens and quaffed ladies kneeling on tasselled cushions and dogs licking their own backs— outlandish dogs with curly manes and shaved bodies and rosetted tails, and hearts crowned and belted with branching antlers larger than their bodies, and knights in armour, and trees with acorns on them so big that each tree had only room for two or three, and the ragged staff of the earls of Warwick with the bear. All these were spared, seeing they dealt with man and beast, and not with God and saint. And by mistake St. Catherine at her wheel and St. Margaret and her dragon, were overlooked and left intact. Perhaps because the wheel and the dragon were so small that the destroyers did not recognise that the quaint little ladies with their parted hair were saints at all. And there they all are to this day, broken some of them, alas, one of them surreptitiously mutilated by Dick as a small boy, but many intact still, worn to a deep black polish by the hands of generation after generation of the sturdy people of Riff, taking hold of them as they go into their places. The Manvers monuments and hatchments jostle each other all along the yellow plastered walls. From the bas-relief kneeling figure of the first Roger Manvers, Burgess of Dunwich, to the last owner, John Manvers, the husband of Lady Louisa Manvers. But their predecessors, the Durbans and the D'Uffords, had fared ill at the hands of Dowsing and his men, who tore up their brasses with orate pro anima on them, and hacked their popish monuments to pieces, barely leaving the figures of Aphia de Ufford, noseless and fingerless, beside her lord, Nicholas Durban of Valen. One Elizabethan brass memorial of John de la Pole, drowned at Walberswick, was spared, representing a skeleton, unkindly telling others that as he is, we soon shall be, which acid inscription no doubt preserved him. "'but you must look up to the hammer-beams "'if you care to see all that is left "'of the memorials of the Durbans "'and of the Poles and the D'Uffords, 
where their shields still hang among the carved angels. Dick had not been worthy of his forebears, and it is doubtful whether, if he had had any voice in the matter, he would have wished to be buried with them. But Roger brought his coffin back to Riff as a matter of course. His death had caused genuine regret among the village people, if to no one else. They had all known him from a boy. There had been a reckless bonhomie about him which had endeared him to his people, in a way that Roger, who had to do all the disagreeable things, could not expect. In time past, Dick had fought and ferreted and shared the same hunk of cake and drunk out of the same mug with half the village lads of Riff. They had all liked him, and later on in life, if he would not or could not attend to their grievances or spend money on repairs, he always put his hand in his pocket very freely whenever he came across them. Even the local policemen and the bearers, decorously waiting at the lich-gate, had sown their few boyish wild oats in Dick's delightful company. He was indissolubly associated with that short heyday of delirious joy. He had given them their one gulp from the cup of adventure and escapade. They remembered the taste of it as the hearse, with its four plumed black horses, came in sight between the poplars along the winding roads from Rebenbridge. Dick had died tragically at thirty-three, and the kindly people of Riff were sorry. Janey and Roger were the only chief mourners, for at the last moment Harry had been alarmed by the black horses, and had been left behind under the nurse's charge. They followed the coffin up the aisle, and sat together in the squire's seats below the step. Close behind them, pale and impassive, sitting alone, was Jones, the valet, perhaps the only person who really mourned for Dick. And behind him again was a crowd of neighbours and family friends, and the serried ranks of the farmers and tenants. In the chancel was the choir, every member present except Mrs. Nichols, Dick's foster-mother, who was among the tenantry. So the seat next to Annette was empty, and to Mr. Stirling down by the font it seemed as if Annette were sitting alone near the coffin. Janey sat and stood and knelt, very pale behind her long veil, her black-gloved hands pinching tightly at a little prayer-book. She was not thinking of Dick. She had been momentarily sorry. It is sad to die at thirty-three. It was Roger, she thought of, for already she knew that no will could be found. Roger had told her so on his return from Paris two days ago. A sinister suspicion was gradually taking form in her mind that her mother, on her last visit to Dick in Paris, had perhaps obtained possession of his will and had destroyed it, in the determination that Harry should succeed. Jenny reproached herself for her assumption of her mother's treachery, but the suspicion lurked nevertheless like a shadow at the back of her mind. Was poor Roger to be done out of his inheritance? For by every moral right, Halver ought to be his. Was treachery at work on every side of him? Janey looked fixedly at Annette. Was she not deceiving him too? How calm she looked, how pure and how beautiful! Yet she had been the mistress of the man lying in his coffin between them. Janey's brain seemed to shake. It could not be, but so it was. She shut her eyes and prayed for Roger and Dick and Annette. It was all she could do. Roger, beside her, kept his eyes fixed on a carved knob in front of him. He knew he must not look round, though he was anxious to know whether Cox and a sailor had seated the people properly. 
His mind was as full of detail as a hive is full of bees. He was tired out, and he had earache, but he hardly noticed it. He had laboured unremittingly at the funeral. It was the last thing he could do for Dick, whom he had once been fond of, whom he had known better than anyone, for whom he had worked so ruthfully and faithfully, who had caused him so many hours of exasperation, and who had failed and frustrated him at every turn in his work for the estate. He had arranged everything himself, the distant tenants' meals, the putting up of their horses. He had chosen the bearers, and had seen the gloves and hat-bands distributed, and the church hung with black. His mind travelled over all the arrangements, and he did not think anything had been forgotten. And all the time at the back of his mind also was the thought that no will was forthcoming, even while he followed the service. Dick might have left Halver to me. We bought nothing into the world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. Poor old Dick, I dare say he meant to, but he was too casual, and had a bee in his bonnet. But if he had done nothing else, he ought to have made some provision for Mary Dean and his child. He could not tell Molly would die before him. For a thousand years in my sight are but as yesterday. Seeing Harry is what he is, and Janie is to have noise, Dick might have remembered me. I shall have to work the estate for Harry now, I suppose. Doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Oh, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Never heard Black read the service better. He'll be a bishop some day. And now that Dick has forgotten me, how on earth am I ever to marry? Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. That's the truest text of the whole lot. Roger looked at Annette, and then fixed his eyes once more on the carved finial of the old oaken bench on which he was sitting, where his uncle had sat before him, and where he could just remember seeing his grandfather sit in a blue frock-coat thirty years ago. He looked for the hundredth time at the ragged staff of the Warwicks carved above the bear, the poor bear which had lost its ears if ever it had any. His hand in its split glove closed convulsively on the bear's head. How was he going to marry Annette? Annette's eyes rested on the flower-covered coffin in front of her, but she did not see it. She was back in the past. She was kneeling by Dick's bed with her cheek against the pillow, while his broken voice whispered, "'The wind is coming again, and I am going with it.' The kind wind had taken the poor leaf at last, the drifting, shredded leaf. And then she felt Roger look at her, and other thoughts suddenly surged up. Was it possible? Was it possible that Dick might part her and Roger? Their eyes met for an instant across the coffin. Already Roger looked remote, as if, like Dick, he was sinking into the past. She felt a light touch on her hand. The choir had risen for the anthem. End of chapter 31